Corinthians chapter 12 for this morning. Uh, and if you don't have a copy of the Bible, we'd love to give you one. There should be one within arm's reach of you, and you'll find this section that we're going to cover this morning on page 901 of those little, uh, those little Bibles on the back of the pew in front of you. Uh, back in the summer of 2018, <clears throat> there was a soccer team in Thailand, 12 middle schoolers and an assistant coach. They got trapped deep inside a cave during monsoon season when a quick and unexpected rain flooded the passageways they had used to get in there. You guys know about this? I'm curious how much detail I need to go into. I mean, half of you guys have heard about this. Well, it's all over the place. There's articles, there's movies, there's documentaries, and it's worth your time. It's an incredible story. These folks, it took them almost two weeks for rescuers even to find out if this team was still alive in there. They did survive not knowing if anyone was coming for a couple of weeks because they found a rock inside the cave that was tall enough to stay above the floodwaters as they rose. And they just huddled there with no food and no water until somebody popped up later to find out that they were still alive. Almost three miles from the opening of that cave that they first climbed into. Took another week to figure out how to get them all out. You know, with folks ferrying food and drink into them to keep them alive while they figured out, could they pump the water out? Could, could they drill their way down in? How, how do we get these boys alive? We can't train them to be divers. How do we get them out? It's a crazy story. It involved thousands of people, and soldiers and police and government officials from all over the world got in on this. Finally, what they had to do, this story ends well, if you don't know it. Finally, what they had to do was sedate the boys and swim them out one by one, one diver for each player on a three-mile swim through tiny passageways with zero visibility until they got to the surface. They got every single one of them out alive. Incredible story. But to me, I think the most incredible part of the story is who it is that ended up getting that job done. It's the special focus of one of the many documentaries out there and movies and, and articles out there. The one that's called The Rescue focuses on who it ended up being who got that job done. What stunned these particular filmmakers was, in their words, quote, a misfit cadre of volunteers, a volunteer middle-aged British cave divers turned out to be the only people on earth capable of saving those boys. The first on the scene were, of course, the elite of the elite. They were the Thai Royal Navy SEALs or something like that. They gave it their best shot. I mean, these were the guys with all the right training, all the right pedigree, in all the right rooms for probably all of their lives. They were the studs. Couldn't get it done. Didn't have the training for this particular job. They had to call in help from cave diving specialists all over the world, which is to say... They called in a bunch of hobbyists, a bunch of self-described absolute nerds. These were nerds with real day jobs who did cave diving on the side because they were nerds. Uh, this British club is the best example, the ones that, that, that had, were central to the effort, the ones that were right at the heart of it and the heart of this particular documentary were from, from England. And they were a bunch of guys who... We're kind of misfits, as that article described them. I mean, the, the documentary goes further into it. it. These were the guys who, you know, got picked on a lot as kids, who sort of drifted into cave diving because they needed their thing. 
because they were excluded from the things everybody else really cared about. One of these guys was Rick Stanton, a 56-year-old former firefighter from the Midlands. He teamed up with John Valanthan, a 47-year-old IT manager from Bristol. Running the whole thing was a guy named Ronald Harper, a potholing expert, whatever that is. I guess he knew how to fill in potholes uh, from Somerset. This dude was 70 years old. These were not the guys that you'd want to go to prom with back in the day. These are not the guys you want defending you from some unexpected invasion. But if you're trapped beneath the earth and you're separated from oxygen and sunlight and life by three miles of completely dark water, these are the guys you need. All hands on deck situation. Everybody necessary. Local church is kind of like this. One way to think about the local church is as an organized rescue operation. And in this rescue operation, everybody is needed. It's all hands on deck. And everybody has something to offer while everybody needs what others offer to them. That's what Paul's driving at in 1 Corinthians 12. The whole point that he wants us to take from 1 Corinthians 12 is that everybody's got something essential and nobody has everything. So we must see ourselves as part of a body. The, the, the subject that's on Paul's mind, the new subject he turns to in this chapter and for the next three chapters in total is spiritual gifts. Like a lot of other things in the life of this church, that we've covered so far through this letter. Uh, this was an area where pride had turned a blessing into a problem. God had given them spiritual gifts. They were using them in the life of their church. But this church was, was made up of people who really cared what other people thought about them. People who saw themselves in some sort of zero-sum game for status. So that if you've got a gift, and somebody else has got a gift... Your goal is to make sure that your gift is higher on the ladder than theirs is. This is a church that is already divided over what leaders were the best ones to follow. It was divided over, which, uh, over, over whether or not things like eating idle meat were a sign of true spirituality or, or, or having sold out. They had taken one after another area of their life together as a church and turned it into competition. Which is to say, they saw the church as a place for showing which people mattered most. And Paul's been hammering at that. Chapter after chapter. Chapter after chapter. He's come right at it. And that's what he's going to do here in the next three chapters. He wants to bring a new perspective to this unfortunate problem. And in chapter 12, he's laying a foundation. He's calling them away from pride and into gratitude. He's calling them away from performance and into service. He's going to call them away from competing to one another and into complimenting one another. To do that, he tells them first what their gifts have in common, and then he explains why their gifts are different. The, whole, the, way, the best way to see the whole chapter is to see it as Paul showing the importance of oneness in a local church body and manyness in a local church body. There is a place for seeing our unity and a place for seeing our differences, and he wants us to understand both in the right way. So the first half of the chapter is about the one. There is one body. The second half of the chapter is about the many. Not all the members of this body have the same functions. And I want to show you one by one what he wants us to see from this, 
to this beautiful chapter. I'm going to begin by reading the first half of the chapter and ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read verse 1 all the way through verse 13 of chapter 12. Paul writes, Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, so all the members of the body, though many, are one body, and so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, And all were made to drink of one spirit. This is God's word. You can be seated. Point number one this morning, there is one body. Paul signals in verse 1 of chapter 12 that he's gotten to a new topic. Now concerning spiritual gifts, he says. I don't want you to be uninformed. This is going to be his topic in chapter 12, in chapter 13, and in chapter 14. Layer by layer, he works through misunderstandings that had made their way back to him. And on the foundational level, he starts this whole conversation. Not where they're wanting him to start. With the differences between these gifts and which ones matter more. But with what these gifts have in common. With the oneness to spiritual gifts that informs how you see all the rest of it. In other words, before you get to how the gifts are different, you need to see how they're all the same. And Paul points to three ways in which their gifts are all the same. First, their gifts are all meant to serve the same Lord. First thing Paul does in this section is take their focus off themselves and how they stack up against one another and, and puts their focus squarely on Jesus where every Christian's mind and heart is supposed to be. Every true spiritual gift, he says, centers on the lordship of Jesus. That's verses 2 and 3. He takes them back to when they were pagans. Back then they were led astray to mute idols, he said. In other words, you had some spiritual experiences back then and they were empty. Because those that they were aiming for were empty and lifeless. Just having spiritual experience is not enough. What matters is, is it true spiritual experience? And how would you know if it were? Then verse 3, he gives you this test. I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God, the living God, the only true God, ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord 
except in the Holy Spirit. You want to know what the mark of real, true spiritual experience is? Paul's telling you. It's not that eye-catching, supernatural, impressive-looking stuff that you came here wondering about, he's telling them. It's not tongue-speaking or prophecies or healings. The miracle you should be blown away with, the sign that the Spirit of God is really at work in the world and in you, is when you say, Jesus is Lord. Nobody says that from the heart unless the Spirit has done a miracle inside them. Guys, the, the Bible sees faith in Christ as a creation of the world sort of miracle. As a nothingness to somethingness kind of miracle. As a death to life kind of miracle. The way Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 4 is, is like this. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the gift that matters most. This right here is the gift that contains all the other gifts. And the Spirit's fundamental baseline work in us is to show us the beauty of Jesus so that we love to serve him as our king. Friends, true spiritual experience is not just about feeling something transcendent. As much as we long to feel something, as appropriate as it is when we do. True spiritual experience is not about self-discovery so that we tap into a deeper and deeper understanding of who we are as us. True spiritual experience is not ultimately just about a, a, a more refined and sensitive moral compass that helps us do what's right and not what's wrong. True spiritual experience, the kind that God's spirit gives to us, when you boil it down, it's specifically about who is Jesus to you. It's about seeing that the wind and the waves obey him. He must be Lord. About seeing that, that he claims the right to forgive sins and buys that right with his own blood. He must be Lord. It's about seeing that though he was dead, he's alive again now. He came out of his grave. He conquered death. He must be Lord. It's about seeing that this no one from nowhere, this carpenter from Galilee is the Lord of all the universe. And if you see him and say that, then your, your life is exhibit A of the miracle working power of God's spirit. If you say Jesus is Lord this morning, then thank God. He's the one who got you there. If you haven't said that yet, but you're intrigued by, we, by the fact that we do, well, let's talk about how God might get you there. Paul starts this conversation about spiritual gifts with the most basic gift of all and a reminder that for all the differences between them, what they have in common matters most, and that starts with the same Lord that is the goal of every spiritual gift. The next thing that these gifts share that Paul draws our attention to is the same purpose. Not just the same Lord, but the same purpose. He's going to get to the, to the individual gifts that, that, that the body has amongst its members. He's, he's going to get there. 
But he's not going to give them what they're looking for. He's not going to establish any sort of pecking order of spiritual awesomeness. He's, he's going to point them to what these gifts are all meant to do. Verse 7 is the thesis for the whole chapter. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Yeah, and they might be different. Each one's got his own gift. But it's for the common good. You see that? In other words, these gifts aren't about you. This church doesn't exist as a platform for showing what you can do, Paul's telling them. It's the other way around. You have the gifts you have, whatever they might be, because the church is so precious. Because the church is worthy of all that you've got. Whatever you've been given, you've been given to serve the common good of the church God's put you in. In fact, the chief sign you really do see Jesus as Lord is that you want to do anything you can to build up what he died to save. That his people, his body will matter to you the way it matters to him. The same purpose lies behind every spiritual gift, however different they might be. And finally, the same source. And this is, this is the most consistent theme that Paul's pointing to in this first half of the chapter. Every gift, no matter how eye-catching or how simple it may seem, no matter how diverse they might be between them, every single gift comes from the same Spirit. Verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. It's all through the list of gifts, starting in verse 8. Look back there with me. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. The utterance of knowledge comes according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. You see it? To another, gifts of healing by the, by the one Spirit. And then summing it all up in verse 11, all are empowered by one and the same Spirit. It's he who apportions to each one individually as he wills. He's the source of it. That's the thing you need to notice. Forget the list. Focus on him. For just as the body is one and has many members, he says, so it is with Christ. In one Spirit, verse 13, we were all baptized into one body and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now, guys, I want to make sure we're staying here right on Paul's through line, what it is that he most wants us to notice in this section. Of course, when we read that list in verses 8 to, to 11, what we want to know is, what are these gifts he's talking about? What's the wisdom? What's the knowledge? What about healings? What about prophecies in tongues? I want to go down into that rabbit hole when I read this list. You might want to as well. And if that's what you're thinking, the first thing I'll say is you're in luck because that's what chapter 14 is all about. That's where Paul does want to go there. So look forward to Jonathan's explanation of all of your questions about these gifts and all of their detail and intricacy. But for now, there's a really good reason Paul just runs off this list without defining them or explaining what he means. He doesn't stop. He doesn't slow down. He doesn't unpack in the way that we might want him to. Because here, he's making a different point. He's not trying to explain spiritual gifts to us in terms of their nature and their purpose on a one-by-one -one basis. He doesn't want us slowing down. He's just firing off illustrations of his main point, which is that there is one spirit who's the source of everything we have and everything we need. He, basically, he's just illustrating the point that he makes in, in verse 4. Verse 4 is his summary. Look back at verse 4. There are varieties of gifts, sure, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, sure, but the same Lord that we're serving. There are varieties of activities, all sorts of stuff going on, but the same God empowers all of them. Do you see his point? 
There's no such thing as a gift given and then over to you. It's yours. Do with it what you can. Our gifts are never about me and you. And moment by moment, whatever we have to offer depends on his power for as long as he continues to empower us. Which is to say, our gifts are from him. Our gifts are through him. Our gifts are to him. Just like everything else in his world. Now, it should be pretty clear why this message mattered so much in Corinth. Where they were so obviously obsessed with themselves and prideful in their competition with one another. But I think there's a gentle warning for us here, too, before we move on. A warning against an approach to spiritual gifts that could take us off of what Paul wants us to focus on. There are two lists of gifts in this particular chapter. One of them is in verses 8 to 11, another in verses 27 to 31, which I'll read here in a minute. Now, I remember when I was a kid in the 90s, there was a ton of focus on spiritual gifts inventories. Uh, maybe, maybe many of you have seen these or participated in these at their best. What they're doing is trying to help us understand what we have to offer so that we can serve our local churches, which is a wonderful thing to do. It's something we should be doing together. But the downside of a spiritual gifts inventory is that it can, it can skew, I think, what Paul means by spiritual gifts and how we ought to think of them, both the ones that, that we might have in us, but, but even more than that, the, the purpose for which they're given. I mean, these, these inventories, uh, they basically combine all the different lists that you'll find in the New Testament of spiritual gifts into a master list and into a set of questions to help you diagnose and identify which one might be yours. There were tests you could take, kind of a mix of aptitude and personality profiling type tests. And when you finished, you'd know what one you had and you could tell others about it. You could look for ways to use it. But I, that's not what Paul's trying to do here. He's not trying to nail down a comprehensive catalog of all the spiritual gifts. That's why the two lists, as you'll see, don't overlap here in this chapter. And they don't overlap perfectly with the ones in other letters. He just wasn't interested in making a catalog here that you could pick from. He's just trying to illustrate that the same spirit's behind everything good that's given into the church. And for another thing, another reason we've got to be careful about this approach to gifts is I mean, in a, in a culture as individualistic and, and brand conscious as ours is, guys, we can just so quickly and easily slip into seeing our spiritual gifts as just part of our self-discovery journey. Paul is not ultimately interested in us understanding ourselves better. He's focused on the spirit who gives generously. He's focused on the source of our gifts, in other words. And he's focused on the purpose for all those gifts, the, the, the service that those gifts are meant to be used in, the service to, 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 to his body. And when we come to those lists mainly for, for self-discovery, we're just clicking ever so slightly our focus onto ourselves and, and off of the church that we're given gifts to serve. And maybe the worst thing of all that we could do if we approach these lists as a kind of inventory to find ourselves in Perhaps the worst thing of all that we could do here would be to narrow in on one thing we think we're great at. The thing we've been gifted to do in the church. And wait for opportunities to do that thing while other needs go unmet. We might be, feel free and justified in not looking for other ways we can serve just because we don't think they fit the gift that we think we've got. 
So if I don't think I'm gifted at teaching, I might not feel free or encouraged to speak up in small group and try to encourage someone else from the word. Or if I don't think that I'm gifted in goldfish distribution, I might just leave the pre-K class to somebody else. I, I heard somebody, maybe here's a good way to put a bow on this. I heard somebody recently say, perhaps the best question to ask in light of the first half of this chapter is not, what are my gifts? Which puts me at front and center. But how can my gifts serve my church? Which puts the church front and center. And maybe the best way to find that out is just to look around and say, what does my church need that I might be able to provide? Who knows if the Lord won't intend to gift me what I'll need to meet that need, even if I've never thought of myself in that role before. So far, so far in the chapter, Paul's main point has been to show us the oneness of the body. There is just one body, and every gift in it comes underneath the same Lord for the same purpose and ultimately from the same spirit. Before you know what you've got to bring to the table, you need to know who stands behind it all and what it's all for. That's chapter 12, verses 1 to 13. Now, Paul's ready to get to what they're really interested in, which is to say all the different gifts that they've got and why God has chosen to give different gifts to different people. Point number two, there are many members. Let me read to you from verse 14 to the end of the chapter. For the body, Paul says, does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that wouldn't make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in one body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts and yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we just bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts don't require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. Those last few verses set the stage for what's coming next week in chapter 13. What I want to do for the remainder of our time here is draw you in to verses 14 to 26. 
where Paul unpacks this metaphor of the body. The church as a body that is just one body but made up of many members who don't all function in the same way. He's finally getting around, as I've mentioned, to what they're really most interested in. Who has what gifts? <laughs> but, but again here, he's not going to give them exactly what they want. He's going to try to reframe how they're thinking about the diversity of the body. See, they probably think about their gifts as part of a ladder that they're climbing. That's the metaphor we've been using for this church and how they saw themselves. Everybody's on a ladder. Everybody's trying to climb higher and faster than everybody else. They saw their gifts as part of that quest to end up at the top and not at the bottom looking up. They saw their gifts as competitive. Paul wants them to see their many gifts as complementary. He, he wants to take them off of that ladder that they think they're climbing where there's an above and a below and a jockey for position in between and, and, and to see themselves instead as part of one body in which the difference between, between one part of the body and another part of the body is essential for how the whole body functions as a body. So what does he want them to know about their manyness? Two things. He wants them to know everybody is gifted and nobody is self-sufficient. Everybody's gifted. Nobody is self-sufficient. In verse 7, Paul's already hinted at the theme that everybody's gifted. He says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In other words, everybody here has got something from the Spirit that this body needs. He hints at it again in verse 11. The Spirit apportions to each one individually as he will. No exceptions. Everybody's got something. He's pointed this direction in the way that he built out his list, you know, showing how broad and wide these gifts are to the wide variety of people. But he really drives home the point beginning in verse 14. The body doesn't consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. In other words, Paul drives home his point using comedy. I don't know if y'all notice the funny in those few verses. There's some funny in there. The body, the body is just funny, isn't it, kids? Bodies. I mean, think about the, think about the foot complaining of, of not being a hand. You can understand why he'd be a little self-conscious, can't you? You can't see the foot, usually. No one's looking down there. A foot can't give somebody a high five after a good play in the field. Foot can't hold a cup of coffee that somebody needs to wake up in the morning. How many people have ever comforted a child who got hurt with their foot? Or walked that child across the street holding their foot with their foot? Your feet can't play the piano. Your feet aren't very good at drawing pictures. And you can imagine this foot saying, man, I get it, I'm kind of gross. I'm often covered up and stinky, or I'm uncovered and filthy. Either way, I'm no good. And Paul says, nope, wrong. The foot is no less part of the body just because he doesn't think he's got what the hand has to offer. Or maybe think about the ear. The ear complains of not being an eye. That one makes sense to me. Nobody ever wrote a poem about the color of their beloved's ears or the twinkle in the ears. Or how dramatic and expressive the ears are. You can't look with ears. They're not really pretty to look at, are they? They're kind of weird, actually, if you look at them, honestly. 
But no, Paul says, I wouldn't make it less a part of the body just because it's not an eye. Every single part is necessary. Verse 17, the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? You think an ear is kind of weird. Imagine a whole body made of an eyeball. That would look ridiculous. If you kids are out there drawing and it's pictures that are inspired by the sermon, this would be a good chance for you to try to draw a whole body that's just an eye, like that guy from Monsters, Inc. You know what I'm talking about. It wouldn't worry. It'd be terrifying. It'd be, it'd be monstrous. And besides, if the whole body were an eye, you'd never know the smell of fresh baked chocolate chip cookies, the smell of fresh roses, I don't know, puppy's breath. Apparently some people think that smells nice. Paul's point is that God knows exactly what he's doing. Verses 18 and 19. As it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? Not anywhere good. That's where it would be. He knows what his body needs and he gives by his spirit crucial gifts to every member of the body of Christ. Now, here's the cash value of what Paul's saying here. I think he has in mind people in the church who feel inferior to other people in the church. People who look around and think, I can't do what they do. That means I don't belong here. As if our belonging must come from our awesomeness. And more than that, from recognized awesomeness. Paul is reminding them and, and us, that's not where belonging comes from in a local church. Belonging comes, first of all, from belonging to Jesus. That's chapter 6 of this very letter. I am not my own. I was bought with a price. He paid his own blood to buy me. I am precious to him, so I belong here. And belonging in a local church goes then to being at the disposal of God's people. I belong to you. Use me. Do what you need with me. I'm here for it. If you need it, I'll serve. And friends, that is going to look different for all of us at different seasons of life. Here we go. Not, not thinking about spiritual gifts as one particular talent that we keep for all of life, but as what God gives us to serve the needs of the body that we have. One of my favorite examples of this view of spiritual gifts in action is our beloved Miss Sue Jeanette, who passed away last fall after decades and decades and decades serving this church. You know, for a long time in her life, she served as a Sunday school teacher where she taught generation after generation of Edgefield women the Bible. She did that uh, week after week after week, literally for decades. Just about the time that I became her pastor, she decided to retire from her Sunday school teaching because her age and her health were keeping her from doing that anymore in the way that she wanted to. And I remember Miss Sue used to come and apologize to me so often. When I'd go to visit her or when I'd see her on a Sunday morning, I'm sorry I'm just not able to do more to serve the church. And what I would always tell her is that when you show up here to worship with us, pull in your oxygen tank along with you, behind you. When you sit there through a Sunday service with that oxygen tank beeping at you because you have serious needs right now, but you're going to be here with your people. You realize what service you're giving to your church. As we get to watch you, this woman of God, approach the end of your life in faith and say, Jesus is still Lord and still good here at the end of it all, just like he was when I was healthy. Do you see how the Lord gifted her for a season of her life to teach and then gifted her for a final season of her life to model for her community 
what it is to reach the end in faith. Both of those were spiritual gifts. Both of those were opportunities to build up her church. She did what she could do. That wasn't the same at every time in her life. And it won't be for you either. You want to experience belonging in the church? The best way to do that is just to look around, see what needs doing, and give your best to it if you can. Your body needs you, and everybody has something to offer. Assume that's you, and then go figure out what it could be. Everyone is gifted. The last thing Paul wants us to know is that no one is self-sufficient. No one. Everybody has gifts, but no one has them all. That's his point in that second half of his body analogy, beginning in verse 21. I can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. There's nobody who's got it all and therefore doesn't need what other members of the body bring to the table. That's his simple point. Of course, the challenge to them is obvious. Enough with the focus on all that you bring to the table. You need to see how badly you depend on what everybody else brings to the table. God didn't mean for any of us to have it all. He means for us to need one another. That's his point in giving us many different gifts. I wonder, is that something you can see in yourself? Do you see yourself as one of many members in one body? As I, as I close here, can I, can I just give you a couple of questions to ask of yourself? To see if you see yourself like that, one member, as part of a body that has many, because you don't have everything you need on your own. Here's a question for you to consider. Can you receive help from others? Does that feel awkward for you when you do? Maybe a little bit of shame in it? It's okay to admit it if that's how you feel. That'd be normal enough for all of us. But it's crucial to see if that's there. Because if you feel hesitant to take, it may be showing you something that you need to see about all the serving that you do for others. If you're always on the giving end and unwilling to receive, it might be showing you that on the giving end, rather than ultimately serving the body, you might be serving yourself more than you realize. It might be too important to you to be that kind of guy. To be the one who gives but doesn't need. To be one who's in a different class, the providing class. It might be you not getting that you're one member in a body. And you will have more fun serving. It will be more joyful to you and certainly more honoring to Jesus. If you serve knowing that what you give to others you need for yourself too. That this might be your day to offer but soon enough it'll be your day to receive because in this body, everybody is needed and I am needy. How about this? Can you say no when you need to? We are always surrounded by infinite need and we will always be surrounded by wonderful opportunities to offset that need and that's gonna be true from now to glory. And we are never going to make a dent in that reality. And what that means is the standard for us, guys, for our ability to rest, it cannot be that we've met all the needs around us or we'll never rest. Part of knowing that you're one member of a bigger body is knowing you don't have to do it all. 
I love this uh, book came out last year by Kelly Capick, a theologian at Covenant College over in Chattanooga on, on receiving our limits as creatures, as intentional gifts from God. It's called You're Only Human. There's this one super relatable section of the book where he talks about an experience he had recently in his church's Sunday school class. He says one week he was deeply moved. They hosted a guest from a local ministry that was, that was uh, sharing about work they were doing in, in the county's prisons to share the gospel with inmates. He was moved by it because it was beautiful work. It was clearly important to God. And, and, and that description of what was going on ended with ways that they could all help. Financial support would be helpful. Mentoring an inmate would be helpful. Corresponding with an inmate for encouragement and friendship. And as this pitch is being made, he says a brown clipboard with white ruled paper begins to circulate around the room. And his soul is pierced as it comes closer to him. I really should sign up, he says. A few weeks later, his class hosted another visitor working in local housing projects to share the hope of the gospel in a place marred by intense crime and chronic poverty and widespread fear, he said. God is doing beautiful and significant things there. And the needs are immense. They're, they're way beyond what, the, what those who are doing the work can handle on their own. At the end of that presentation, the leaders pass around the same clipboard. But now with a different set of sign-up sheets on it, he's pierced again. I can see how vital this is. This work is so important. I know I should support it. What do I do? Not long after that, it was their church's annual missions conference. Last year, that conference had focused on work in the Muslim world. Next year, it was planning to focus on work in Europe. This year, it was focused on India. Prayers were needed. People were needed to go. Finances were needed to support the work. How do I respond? You can see where he's going with that, right? You've surely experienced that. There is always going to be unlimited need out there. And we will always have limited capacity. And if we give in to the pressure that we put on ourselves to do it all, it might be from guilt, it might be from pride, it might be from an all-consuming compassion that keeps us from seeing ourselves as we are, but whatever else it'll be, it'll come from failing to understand that we're just one member in a larger body. We don't have to do everything that's important to do because we're not the only ones doing things in the work of this body. Saying no doesn't mean you're saying it's not important. It might mean you're just trusting the body to reach and work beyond your reach. And that's a good thing, not a bad thing. Especially when you can rejoice in the gifts of others. Here's your last question for you. Can you? Can you rejoice in the work that other people are doing with their gifts? The work that others are doing in your body is, is not a standard that you're failing to meet. The work they're doing is not a distraction from what they should be doing, which is to say whatever you're into. It's work God has given them to do and gifted them to do. That's why verse 26 talks about the importance of rejoicing together. If one member is honored, all rejoice. We do what each other does. Can you see how, how different this is from how Corinth was looking at things? They're thinking of themselves as on this ladder. They're either looking up with envy. Man, I should be more like those guys. Or they're looking down with contempt. They should be more like me. But Paul's saying, we're off the ladder. That game's over. We are a body. We have different members, not all doing the same things. So that all of us have what we need to thrive together. 
One of the main things that, that we try to do when we meet for prayer on Sunday evenings is highlight the beauty of, of this body working with its many members doing different things, all contributing what we can, but all going further than any one of us could reach. So a few months ago, we had our brother Jim Henderson come and talk about what was going on at Siloam Health, one of my favorite organizations in town, blown away by the work of this place. But I don't have Jim's training. I can't do health screenings and I can't do preventive medicine and I can't do anything to help you if you're sick the way that he can. I don't even have time to volunteer weekly to help with intake and paperwork. But I'm a member of Jim's body. You know what that means? That means in a way when he serves there, I serve there too. Some weeks after that, we heard Jacob Jones share about the Fellowship of Christian Athletes and evangelism opportunities that he gets at his high school, Stewart's Creek High School down in Rutherford County. I'm not a high school student and I'm not an athlete. I can't reach to where Jacob is reaching. But I'm a member of Jacob's body, which means I'm part of that work too. And I can rejoice in it and feel solidarity with it. And today I'm up here talking to you guys about 1 Corinthians 12. What a joy that is. What a gift to be able to do it. When on June 18th, I'll get to take care of pre-K kids down the hall while Jonathan talks to you about 1 Corinthians 15. I'll be part of the work he's doing up here while I'm doing the work I can do back there because we're part of the same body and not all the members have the same function all the time, but we rejoice in what we all do together for the same purpose, serving our same Lord. In other words, we don't compete with each other. We complement each other. Everyone has gifts. No one has all of them. So we work together to say together, Jesus is Lord. And it's a lot easier to do that with a community than it is to do that by yourself. Father, I pray that you will help us to lean in to the calling you've given us to honor the Lordship of Jesus as one body with many members. We ask you to protect us from pride, to protect us from inferiority, to protect us from any sign that we're here to compete and give us instead the joy that comes from being part of something working together for your glory, not ours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.